Terrence Young returned to the directing role for the James Bond franchise in 1965 as he took Sean Connery's James Bond on an adventure under the sea to stop a madman named Largo and another Spectre plot in Thunderball. Podcasters, assemble. Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Our contact with the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network intercepted an encrypted audio message regarding podcasters assemble a hype rewatch podcast for this season the podcast network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the bond movies and a countdown to the latest film in the franchise no time to die your primary objective is to infiltrate podcasters assemble by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone the latest from Branch. for a full mission report Go to probablywork.com. We're all counting on you, 003. Hi, this is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Honor Co. Hello, and this is MC from the best animated shows ever, so far. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History. This is Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs podcast. And today I'm here to talk about Thunderball. And this is... Thunderball. Codename Thunderball. So this one is the fourth movie, but it's based on the ninth book. Okay, so this was my favorite Sean Connery movie when I was growing up. Thunderball. I haven't seen it for a few years. But I am now 50-50 split between Thunderball and Goldfinger. I still like the action sequences better than Thunderball, and Bond also acts like a detective like 40 times, so that's fun. Thunderball is a very strange James Bond movie for me, because I remember the knockoff version of it more than the original. You see, Thunderball has a weird background. It started out as a screenplay first that was worked on by Ian Fleming and a couple of other folks, And then Ian Fleming turned it into a book when it didn't look like Bond was going to make it to the big screen a couple years before the Doctor No movie came out. Then when they started making the movie, those other guys were like, hey dude, you stole the ideas from our screenplay, including Spectre and Blofeld, and put them into one of your books, and now you're making a movie out of it, but we were the ones who came up with those ideas. I am interested to check out the book at some point, uh, especially since this was the first book that was actually based on the script. Apparently, this was written around the time Dr. No was coming out, and in the books, at least, it's the first one that introduces Spectre. So what ended up happening is those guys got credited as the producers on the movie and then retained some of the rights to the characters, Blofeld, Spectre, and... um, ended up being able to make their own movie years later called Never Say Never Again, which is basically the same story with the same characters with Sean Connery playing James Bond, but it's not an official Bond movie. It's really strange. So the big push in this movie is that it really brings Spectre to the forefront. They've been mentioned in Dr. No and in From Russia With Love. I don't remember if they get a name drop in Goldfinger. So this one has a pretty run-in-the-mill cold open. But in this one, we meet Spectre agents right off the bat because Bond is actually at the funeral for a guy who was a Spectre agent. But as 
his grieving wife is leaving the funeral, Bond notices, hey, she she opened the door to the car herself. She's a woman of high society. She would never open a door for herself. So he goes, he confronts her, punches her in the face because he's a man, baby. Oop, sorry, that was Austin Powers again. You've got Bond beating up what looks to be a grieving widow. James Bond beats the crap out of her, but it turns out that it's it's this guy, this Spectre agent, who faked his own death, and they have, like, a furniture fight in a house where they're using, like, bookshelves and chairs and clocks and curtains to fight each other. Uh, eventually, fire pokers get involved, um, and, and Bond kills the guy, like, strangles him to death, and then, like, tosses some flowers on his body as he runs away. The best part of the cold open in this movie is the escape from number six's estate in France. And then he escapes uh, with a jetpack. He just sort of whips out a jetpack and flies off and gets in a car. So he has a little jetpack escape in this film right at the beginning. There was a whole confrontation and escape planned, and Bond even packed a helmet with his jetpack. But seriously, jetpack, that's awesome. And we see the return of the famous DB5. All right, Thunderball. All right. This is a pretty cool opening. I see what you're doing here. Then we go into the song for Thunderball. The opening to Thunderball is probably the most stereotypical of all Bond openings. I don't like the song very much. Uh, It turns out, I found out while I was researching this movie, that there was actually another song that was originally going to be used for it, which was called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, turns out Kiss Kiss, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was a name a reporter gave to James Bond. And I love that as a name for Bond. What does he do? He kisses people and he shoots them. Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, but they wrote a song called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And actually had Shirley Basie perform it. The same woman who did Goldfinger. And it's really good. I really like it a lot. Then they decided that it would probably be weird to have a song that wasn't the same title as the movie. And so then they did a new song and it's called Thunderball. So a Thunderball is basically the nuclear fallout uh, from an atomic bomb. I do have a quick question about the title song. Are the lyrics about Bond or Largo? Because he always walks while there's run, I guess. I don't I don't get the song. So the lyrics say, he always runs while others walk. He acts while other men just talk. He looks at this world and wants it all, so he strikes like Thunderball. He knows the meaning of success... His needs are more, so he gives less? They call him the winner who takes all, and he strikes like Thunderball. Any woman he wants he'll get, he will break any heart without regret. His days of asking are all gone? Bond's still awful. The worst. His fight goes on and on and on, but he thinks that the fight is worth it all, so he strikes like Thunderball. I don't like it. It's, it's just boring to me. But Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is very good. This one really establishes the trend of female silhouettes. I think it does it in a really interesting way. Obviously, uh, the movie establishes right away that there's definitely like an underwater theme uh, going on. So look, we're underwater and there's a lot of scuba diving. This is basically the movie saying, hey... I hope you like scuba diving, because there's going to be a lot of shots of people underwater scuba diving. When this movie came out, they were really excited to be able to film underwater. And you can tell. There's a whole opening bit 
where Bond is at a health spa, and it turns out that one of the people from Spectre is also at the health spa. And it's just weird. And it's weird in the book. And it's weird here. And I don't care. It's just... It's just weird. I understand the whole clinic section, but they spent a quarter of the movie with Bond sexually harassing his physical therapist and getting pranked by the most useless of the Spectre agents. Oh, I almost forgot to mention, during the weird health clinic part that I don't care about, Bond almost gets murdered and then uses that to extort a woman into having sex with him, who he's already sexually assaulted once before in the movie. So, Bond's still awful. The worst. So the general plot of this movie is actually well worked out. My wife was surprised that Spectre made a comeback, so that's fun. The start of the real story of Thunderball happens when uh, we see um, Largo going into a Spectre base. I love that the hidden Spectre base in Paris is inside of the Displaced People's Charity. That's pretty diabolical. Also, that means number one, Blofeld, would be most likely a well-known philanthropic person always going there or being there. I mean, that's great. Too bad they wasted that character trait in later iterations, but they could have come back to that one. Someone we all knew and loved. Be like, if Elon Musk were a villain. My favorite villain moment is uh, when number nine, for failing, um, gets killed by an electric chair. Uh, No, it wasn't for failing. It was for treachery, I'm pretty sure. Um embezzlement um i'm pretty sure is why he gets electrocuted and still we don't see number one's face in in this film this conference room where blofeld's up at the head of the room hiding hidden behind a curtain so you can't see his face it's very menacing it's not very practical like this conference room is so big that the like 12 people who are in it need to have microphones at each of their chairs but it sure is sinister looking it's a, a wild success on that front Spectre's evil plot is basically to ransom NATO with two nukes for a hundred million pounds sterling. The villain goes through a lot of efforts to steal bombs from a NATO training flight. This would have been a genuine fear back then. The U.S. military had already lost some bombs by this point, uh, and also accidents like Tybee Island 1958, Frostburg 1964, plus all the Cold War up we had going on in Germany. And then they're going to ransom these bombs back to England for money. Or bomb Miami. Whatever comes first. And you find out that their plot is that they're going to steal a plane that's got some nuclear missiles on it uh, and then hold the world ransom. All right. Cool plan. And another one of my fun random money facts, 100 million pounds is 2,427,284,502.56 today. And I looked it up. I'm not even sure that much diamonds existed at the time. Like they called De Beers, but like at all. It would literally be all of the rough mine diamonds for the 1960s plus the 1950s. It's a lot of diamonds. You wouldn't have to worry about uncut or untraceable diamonds to find Spectre. You just like find the guy who has literally all of the diamonds ever. plane hijacking scene is really interesting to me. In Goldfinger, I really liked that during the heist at the end of the movie, you got a long sequence without dialogue. And the plane hijacking feels like pretty much the same thing here. Um, The guy who is going to steal the plane, we know he's evil because turns out he's been surgically altered to look like another guy. And he's extra special evil because he's extorting Spectre for more money. 
He's like, oh, you're going to have to give me an extra couple hundred thousand dollars. Otherwise, you'll have to find somebody else. Which immediately you're like, this dude's going to die. For me, the most notable henchman has got to be the dude who got plastic surgery just so he could steal the nukes. And then after that insanely elaborate heist, uh, he gets killed for asking for too much money. Um, But then it's this long sequence where he's in the plane and he kills everybody else in the plane and then he's flying the plane and then he's bringing the plane into the water and Largo I think has like one line on the boat and then the plane crashes and then they go diving down to get the plane and they kill the pilot of course and hide the plane and take the nuclear missiles off of it and all it's like it's probably like 10 minutes long of almost no dialogue happening when they steal the two bombs uh, they're escorting it with these little handheld jet underwater jet skis. Uh, that's probably my favorite vehicle in this um, the film. And again, it's it's kind of cool because like you're focused in on the high side of things. You can understand the storytelling that's happening because you know what the plan is and you're just watching the plan unfold. One of my favorite little gags in this movie is when Bond is coming in to, uh, to headquarters to find out what the big plot is. Like, oh man, what's happening? Turns out people stole bombs. But he's coming in to find out and he opens the door and he's about to do the little trick where he flicks his hat across the room to land on the hat rack and try and impress Money Penny. But the hat rack's moved and it's right next to the door. And so he opens the door with kind of like this childlike grin on his face. And then he sees the hat rack right next to him and just hangs his hat up and looks a little sad. One of my favorite moments in this one is actually the briefing with M, with the Prime Minister. You got this really cool scene where you have all nine of the double O agents lined up and given dossiers. Right off the bat, the nature of this mission seems so much bigger than what we've seen before. I mean, yeah, Goldfinger had a nuclear bomb, but Spectre now has two ready-to-launch nuclear missiles. Bond is so on top of things in this movie. Like, he figures out just from looking at a couple of file photos during the briefing that the bombs are totally going to be in Nassau. One interesting thing to note about this one is that there's not a whole lot of locales. It's mostly just Nassau in the Bahamas. Which, if you're going to pick just one locale to stick around, you can't do much worse than that. Then he gets there and he meets Largo and he's like, got this guy pegged, I know he's the bad guy. So the villain in this movie is Largo, uh, Spectre's number two. He's the guy with the eye patch, And I completely forgot that he was number two, uh, which is funny because in Austin Powers, they actually have a character called number two, and it's basically this guy. So he goes out and plays cards with him and starts winning, and he's like, oh, I saw a Spectre on your shoulder. And Largo's like, Whoa? and he's like, the Spectre of defeat. And he just keeps saying Spectre, just to make sure Largo knows, like, hey, I know that you're the bad guy, and I want you to know that I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that I know that you're the bad guy. And then Largo sends an assassin to his room, and there's this great shot where Bond's, like, playing back, because he's got a secret recorder. He's playing back the recorder and, like, watching 
the sounds, like he's looking around the room to be like, okay, I hear the door opening, so the guy was there, and then I hear footsteps, so he probably went over here. He figures out where the assassin is, which is hiding behind a curtain in the bathroom. That's why you always leave your shower curtains open to make sure there's not an assassin in there. And then instead of killing the guy, he's like, go tell Largo that I'm, that I know that he knows, that I know that you know, that I know that he knows, that we know, that Felix Leiter here knows, who's gotten a lot younger again, that I know that we know that he's the bad guy. I do really enjoy seeing Sean Connery sneak around Largo's place. I loved Paula. She was a strong, independent, secret agent woman, helper to Bond. Uh, And actually, she killed herself before giving up any information. Uh, But Bond didn't sleep with her or treat her anyway, but like a gentleman. At least that we saw. Uh, Another fun fact, the actress who played Paula was also one of the gypsy girls from In Russia With Love. My favorite kill has got to be the sharks in the pool. Can we just point out that this movie is just a couple lasers short of sharks with freaking laser beams on their head? I imagine filming this movie was a lot of fun. I mean, even Q shows up to work in a pineapple shirt. This movie had some great gadgets. You have a tracking pill, or as Q calls it, a harmless radioactive device. Uh, my favorite, um, gadget is the non-lethal radioactive isotope that they track James Bond with, um, that gets him out of this, like, small cage that he gets trapped in once he tracks down where the bombs are. This time, Bond has a Geiger counter watch and a rebreather. I love the little portable air supply thing that Bond's issued. That would be so useful in the real world. So much that a company in 2016 made a fake device called the Triton Gill System and then scammed a bunch of people out of money. It's clever that it only lasts for five minutes. It makes sense that it wouldn't last for that long, but I like that his gadgets just seem so much more practical when they have limitations like that. Uh, In the movie, it definitely lasted more than the four minutes allotted, though. So there's actually two Bond girls in this movie once again. We have uh, Domino and Fiona. Domino, for the most part, is mostly there to be a pretty brunette. She doesn't seem to have a lot of agency, unfortunately, but she does get the chance to get revenge on Largo at the end uh, by, you know, stabbing him in the back. Spoiler alert. Domino was actually useful in this movie, and she killed Largo. She even tried to investigate on behalf of Bond, but, you know, she got caught in all that. Uh, She was capable of driving a boat, and even Bond said, you swim like a man. I'm still unsure what her actual position was besides Mistress DeLargo. I mean, it was convoluted. Her brother is a guy that Largo kills and has a duplicate made up to pretend to be. Would it just be easier to bribe Dervil, her brother, or just, you know, threaten Domino to make him steal the bombs versus going through that whole surgery and bribing thing? Now, Fiona is an interesting character. Um, (laughs) It's really weird. So she's a Spectre agent and she has a very big, you know, Spectre ring, like clearly giving that away. And Bond, of course, introduces himself as James Bond, enemy number one on Spectre's hit list. So they kind of, you know, they know what each other is up to. They know that each other know. And they still flirt and act like neither one knows what the other's up to. It's very weird. I'm a big fan of Fiona in this movie. 
She was the evil redhead that got the best of Bond a time or two. She murdered people and drove my second favorite vehicle the entire movie, the 1965 Gold BSA with a rocket launcher. She dies by being shot by one of her own henchmen. She's just dead. Great scene. Um, he, he had sex with her the night before, and he knew she was a baddie, but he had sex with her because he's James Bond. Uh, Meg pointed out that Bond seems to have a thing for women that want to kill him. I mean, I guess it's almost his fetish. It's like his kink, I guess. And uh, she says something about, like, I hope you enjoyed yourself. And he's like, what I did last night, I did for Queen and Country. And she has this, like, crazy retort where she goes, but of course, I forgot your ego, Mr. Bond, Mr. James Bond. He makes love to a woman and she starts to hear heavenly choirs sing. She repents and turns to the side of right and virtue, but not this one. I like it, but it is weird because apparently the whole world knows that like if everybody heard about Pussy Galore, like within the the circle of villainesses, everybody's like, you remember Pussy Galore? Oh yeah, she was great. She was such an evil woman. I loved her so much. And then like, yeah, but then she got raped by this guy named James Bond and it was so good that she turned into a hero and betrayed her villainous ideals. And they're all like, oh, that James Bond shakes a fist at him for being so good at sex, I guess. Also, trivia a note, she was in a 1958 movie called No Time to Die. Yes, apparently she's a time traveler in the James Bond universe. But no, it was eventually changed to Tank Force. It was also directed by the director of this movie, Terrence Young, and produced by Albert Broccoli. So that's crazy. And Bond is being taken by, by Fiona uh, after she's captured him. They, they're, oh man, they're being delayed by like this festival that's going on through town. Junkanoo is a Christmas slash New Year's event on the islands. It doesn't happen randomly over two days in March. I mean, after Spectre, Mexico started celebrating that made-up holiday from the movie, maybe this was their first attempt to change culture around them. Some guy comes up and is trying to give him whiskey to drink or something, and Bond ends up dumping it all over the car and lighting the car on fire and running away, and thus begins a long tradition of James Bond foot chases through a carnival. Largo basically had like 400 henchmen in his compound. My favorite henchman is actually Mr. Vargas. I think Vargas was like one of the weirdest henchmen. Uh, he's like kind of skinny and creepy and he doesn't drink or smoke or have sex. And he is uh, very serious and creepy. And um, yeah, that's probably uh, my favorite. But this guy is like the one person he can trust not to be drunk or anything. My favorite kill in this movie is absolutely the death of Vargas, one of uh, Largo's henchmen. Uh, Bond and Domino are on the beach. They've just had their weird underwater sexual escapade and then he chewed a poisonous barb out of her foot and said, oh, I've never tasted women. They taste good. That's a weird line. Um, and then uh, Vargas is like sneaking up and Bond's like, hey Domino, your brother's dead. Largo killed him and Vargas is gonna shoot Bond. He's just a weird guy. A stoic killer who tried to sneak up on Bond in broad daylight with a gun out? I mean, weird, but not smart. And Bond reaches over. He's looking the other direction. He reaches over with his right hand, picks up a harpoon gun, looks over, and immediately shoots the harpoon gun. No scopes Vargas in the chest to death. I think one of the best Bond one-liners is when he shoots a henchman with a harpoon and says, I think you got the point. But um, 
How did he hear him coming? How did he know where to aim? I don't know, he's James Bond, that's just what he does. I know Troy mentioned this before, but there's a lot of scuba diving. Like, a lot. So much scuba diving. This movie is all about people scuba diving, so there are so many sequences where just no dialogue's happening because everybody's underwater, and it gets real boring to me. I really do enjoy this movie, but man, if they could just cut 30 minutes out of it, it would be so much better. The the big sex scene is underwater in this one. Bond dives behind some coral with with Domino and a bunch of bubbles come out and apparently that's the big sex scene in this movie. Like everything in this movie happens underwater. So towards the end of the movie, just when you think that there couldn't be any more scuba diving, there's an entire scuba diving battle. Now, the pacing of this movie was better than Goldfinger, but there were some sections that seemed to like stretch on way too long. I'm looking at you, 15 minute underwater battle. There's literally two armies of scuba divers firing harpoons at one another underwater. So the end of this movie is, of course, the underwater scene where you have Largos's men trying to get the nuclear bombs to Miami, and you've got, I guess, Marines parachuting in in diving gear. I don't know. It's kind of cool. Um, Largos's men are all in black. The Marines are all in red, and they start just having this huge fight underwater. It looks pretty good. I'm not going to lie. It does go on for like 25 minutes, which is way too long for a giant underwater action scene. Uh, right at the end, there's a big fight between Spectre and the Coast Guard, and a bunch of people just get hit with harpoons, and it's kind of like really weird. There's like several in there. Um, ones that stand out is... One guy gets hit um, at the junction of his water, uh, air supply uh, with a harpoon, and uh, that happens. Uh, James Bond just uh, swimming around, cutting everyone's uh, uh, the tubes. But the best part of it is that Bond comes in because here's all these here's all these guys who are totally trained in scuba diving and underwater combat and stuff. But James Bond comes in with like a underwater jetpack that lets him fly into the fray super fast, and he starts just ripping masks off people and stabbing people and cutting their breathing tubes and stuff. Bond has a higher kill count than any of the trained Marines in this movie because he's James Bond. Of course he does. Uh, there's one guy who gets shot in the arm and then immediately there's like sharks that you see so I'm not sure if it's implied if that guy's killed by the shark or not but there's a whole bunch of just like in the whole battle between Spectre and the Coast Guard there's a whole bunch of really fun different kills many with harpoons I think my favorite vehicle in this movie is the nightclub frisbee. Uh, sorry, I mean disco volante. Or if you speak Italian, flying saucer. That's fun. Favorite vehicle is definitely Largo's uh, speedboat slash houseboat. So I always wanted a yacht because of this movie, and you know, I deserve it. I'm a strong, independent woman. But I love the fact that it breaks off into hydrofoil and it goes like 95 miles an hour in the worst chase sequence ever. Uh, and Largo just leaves his henchman to fight off the entire U.S. Coast Guard and an uh, HMS Navy frigate. Like, okay, bye guys. Hope you don't die too quick. In the end, Largo gets back onto the boat and they separate the boat into two pieces. One that's like got full-on artillery cannons on the other. 
on the, the end of it for some reason. And then the other one's got uh, like hydrofoils so it can go super fast and Bonds on the super fast one. He's fighting Largo. Oh man. So then he got this uh, epic fight aboard uh, Largo's speedboat as it's careening out of control. And then the, the girl comes in and she shoots Largo in the back and he's dead. And But he locked the controls and the boat's going really, really fast. And you can tell it's going fast because they use like comically sped up footage of a boat going fast. Like it should be playing yakety sax as this boat drives across the water because it is way too fast. I actually remember really liking this part as a kid. It's obviously really cheesy uh, by today's standards, but you got to remember, this is before even Star Wars came out. And then, oh man, it's going to crash on the rocks. The only people left alive on the boat are Bond and Domino and the scientist, who turned out to be a good guy, and he saved Domino in the end. And they're like, all right, we've got to jump off the boat. And the the scientist guy's like, but I can't swim. And Bond's like, ah, well, it's a good time to learn, I guess, and throws him in the water. So then after Domino kills Largo, Bond and her escape in just the nick of time before the whole boat smashes into the rocks and explodes. And once again, the movie ends with uh, Bond and a girl on a life raft. And then Bond and Domino get in a raft. And you think the movie's going to end with them in a boat, but he shoots off a, a balloon and gets picked up by a plane flying by. So I can't believe they used the Fulton recovery system, the spy hook. The U.S. was currently using it as a tool in Vietnam, like currently at the time. So that they were just to use it as a gimmick in a spy movie during the Cold War, that's just fascinating. Bond and the Domino, I guess, are going to have sex while hanging off of a rope from the end of a plane. But where'd that scientist go? My wife had to point out like three times that Coots, the nuclear scientist who helps free Domino, is just thrown overboard at the end of the movie after he said he can't swim. And then they never show him again. Uh, my wife just wanted to make sure that was clear to everybody. And if it wasn't for all the scuba diving, I would say this is a pretty solid Bond entry. But because of that, as far as rewatch value, uh, this one's definitely like lower middle tier, I'd say. If you're a Bond fan, I definitely recommend watching it at least once. So overall, I, I mean, Thunderball's fine. It's It's got a lot of really, really bad pacing issues for me. Um, a lot of just slow underwater scenes it just i lose interest every time one of those come up i can totally see why this is the one bond book that has actually been adapted twice first with this movie and then with never say never again unfortunately this movie suffers mostly because never say never again exists and while I haven't seen it in a long time, my memory is that I think I like it better because all the things I thought I remembered from Thunderball, including the actor who plays the lead villain, were actually things I remember from Never Say Never Again. So I think this is a case where the remake kind of obliterates the original for me. And I almost wish that we could actually see another adaptation of it in the future. If they ever decide to reboot the franchise and just readapt the books and make them period pieces with sort of a modern eye, I think this one would have a lot of potential. Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work 
Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online.